0: This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank.
1: Hello, this is Vincent Manier, CFO of ECOVA, and you're listening to the CFO
0: Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode
1: 339. People have this saying, people say that people work for people, not for companies. In, in my experience, I've found that to be, to be just so true, especially in companies like a software company where, you know, 75% of the uh, of the cost base is people. So, you know, for those people, and also for the, the, the CFOs amongst us, you know, understanding different leadership styles, I think is is really important. You know, it's not necessarily something that you're you're taught as part of being a you know, chartered accountant, CPA but it's something you have to really pick up over time. And it's really essential in my mind to not only understand how how you're developing as a leader, but also to to navigate the CEOs that you work with and and the board members that you work with and the other senior management team that that you work with. Sometimes navigate with and sometimes sometimes navigate around some of the the styles that you, you come across.
0: From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations hi i'm jack sweeney on today's show we speak to ian peacock cfo of cluster 7. the reality in many finance departments today is that they don't have visibility of the data flows across their spreadsheet and end-user computing landscape or so ian peacock tells us cluster 7 a SaaS developer believes it has the solution But Ian will have to part with his own career history and a number of financial insights before we ask for the scoop on Cluster 7. Our interview with Ian begins after these words from our sponsor. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking with Ian Peacock, CFO of Cluster 7. Welcome, Ian. Hi, Jack. How are you? Very well. I know you're talking uh, with us from the UK uh, this morning, and I want to just begin where we always do with our guests, uh, where we try to look back in time and discover uh, how they prepared to become a CFO. What would you tell us? What were those uh, career experiences that you feel helped prepare you?
1: Okay. Um, Well, I've been through uh, what you would call a CPA training. Um, So for us, it's a chartered accountant. So I trained with. Uh, the Big Four, uh, with uh, Ernst and Young, as it was in those days, showing my age. Spent some time with PwC uh, and got some really good experience around uh, different types of uh, verticals, um, different types of experiences around audit, tax, corporate finance, and, and, and the sort of standard fare there. That, that, that gave me a really good uh, grounding. Um, and then from from that point, uh, I decided a few years after qualification that I'd like to spend some time. Outside of public practice, and uh, and as we say, you know, venturing into the real world. Um, so I ended up joining um, a U.S. company, in fact, as their assistant controller uh, for Europe. They were just embarking on an IPO process, and uh, my background and and interest had, had always been in technology companies. So I, I took that opportunity. They were a software company. Help, help them as much as I possibly could, coming from uh, public practice, help them through their IPO process. Um,
0: what company was that?
1: So that's a company called uh, ViewLogic, ViewLogic Systems. Uh, they're uh, EDA, zone Automation, um, ultimately acquired by Synopsys. Um, so they're now uh, now fully embedded in Synopsys.
0: And this was um, the 1990s when you were with it, it right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: It was, yes. Uh, seems a long while ago now, scarily. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was the, that was the early 90s. So I spent some, some time with those guys. That was really interesting. You know, they, they had a, a number of European operations. So I spent time going around Europe, uh, traveling to the U.S., uh, understanding a bit about the, uh, the sort of top table in the U.S. and the, and the CFO organization over there, how that works, um, whilst I was uh, running sort of finance operations across Europe. So, so I spent about, 10 years doing that with various U.S. companies. Um, what, I, what that really prepared me for is, um, is understanding that you know, I was interested in having a broad breadth of experience. So not just uh, finance, but also uh, tax, legal, HR, treasury, admin, uh, the, the whole piece really. Um, and to develop into a, a CFO uh, here in the U.K., uh, I took an opportunity to to join a, an earlier stage business here in the UK um, as their their first CFO. Um, that was uh, uh, about oh, dare I say about twelve thirteen years ago. They were a VC backed company, and uh, and I spent some time with those those guys. Um, we actually sold that business. Uh, to uh, to a publicly listed company here in the UK, um, and then I spent the next uh, the next ten years or so up until my current role um, as a as a CFO of early sort of growth based tech businesses here in the UK. Um, you know one of the things that uh, that having the the audit experience, the Big Four experience, and the experience of working for public US companies was you know they, they instill instilling you a, a great sense of uh, process and control and, uh, and metrics and, and those things became uh, really embedded in the way I, I sort of work and, uh, and something that I could take to, to some early stage businesses here in the UK um, that hadn't necessarily had that, that rigor before. Uh, so that, that's what I did. Um, you know, working closely with CEOs in, in the UK, becoming the, the sort of trusted advisor. To, to those uh, those CEOs and the senior management team generally, uh, a lot of cash control, managing growth, uh, all, all that good stuff that the CFOs get involved in, um, and, and that took me to to my current role. Okay,
0: I wanted to uh, just ask. It's interesting. Did you ever live outside the UK, Ian? where you or, or uh, were you required to?
1: Um. Interesting, so actually I spent so when I was uh, with Big Four with PWC as it is now, uh, I spent uh, six months in the Sydney office. Um, one of the things that I was attracted to and interested in uh, was the computer side of things. so i uh, I helped uh, help grow their computer audit practice in in Sydney in Australia. Uh, so that was that was really interesting.
0: The view logic now, uh, and I just want to understand better. View logic—that was that a U.S. based company? I think you might have shared that already, but I just want to clarify. Yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah, a U.S. based company. You were there for uh, well a span of uh, I, I believe seven years. So you really—that's where you really sort of sank your teeth into uh, uh, becoming sort of this expert in terms of European operations. How would you describe it?
1: Yeah, so that that was a really interesting time. I mean, those or well, that company was was growing pretty quickly, um, as I explained earlier. You know, they, they, early on in, in my tenure there, they they IPO'd. Um
0: How big? So how I, many? How many employees was it when you left? Do you recall? They would have been about uh, just under hundred, I think,
1: across Europe. Probably three hundred across the world. Um, so, so there were you no. Know, a, a reasonable size. Um, what I'm getting at is really the, well. the,
0: the, uh, the span of time you were there, you certainly saw this grow from may, maybe a few dozen employees, or how would you characterize uh, your tenure there and how the company grew? I, I imagine you saw, you know, it double in size, triple in size. Am I correct?
1: It actually went about sevenfold in size from the time I joined. I was instrumental in opening a couple of offices. So we had uh, we have offices in various countries across Europe. Um, but I opened an office in, uh, in Sweden and the Netherlands. Um, we actually acquired a company in the Netherlands, um, so I was heavily involved in the, the due diligence around that process. Um, and, uh, and even ultimately ended up with uh, some responsibility for the, the Japan office as well. So it was was very much an an international role, uh, which which I I really enjoyed.
0: So I can see that uh, your experience would be uh, rather attractive to other uh, companies that uh, are looking to grow quickly. They need an executive who's familiar with what it takes to grow a company, the processes that need to get put into place to accommodate it. Uh, I'm wondering what the career choices were at that point in time. And what appealed to you and why?
1: Yeah. Um so one of the key themes for, for me during my career has been to try to make sure that finance is really really embedded and involved in the business. Um, you know, not just reporting numbers, um and looking over your shoulder, but um but really working with the the, the sharp end of the business, you know, the, the sales guys and um and the BD guys and so on, and helping them, uh, helping them create value for the business. So, so that has always been been an attraction, and and there was there was a sort of um, uh, one of your aha moments if you like. Uh, so one of the companies I was with uh, was acquired by Nortel. Um, so this was in the uh, in the tech boom days when when there were some some people might say crazy valuations and uh, and acquisitions being made for for crazy amounts of money. So the company I was with uh, was one of those acquired companies. Uh, We were acquired by by Nortel, as I say. And the experience I had working with Nortel for a short period really cemented my view that I I just didn't want to be um, siloed. I mean, I was having... Um, integration meetings with the guys from from Nortel, and there'd be, you know, there'd, there'd be me, and there'd be four, five, six people from Nortel um, trying to cover one one in my mind, you know, one subject area, um, because you know, they 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 kind of were very siloed and they knew what they knew very well, but but didn't really know so much beyond uh, beyond those boundaries, and you know that, that really. That really sort of hit home to me that uh, I, I just didn't want to be in that in that large company uh, environment where where you don't see the whole picture, um, which is why I you know I moved more towards the the earlier growth stage businesses um, and uh, and you know, the, the first CFO opportunity that came up for me with, with, was here in the UK and, and that that was with, with that experience in mind, you know, that, that was really uh, that was really crucial to my, uh, my career path at that point. Um, yeah, I could have, uh, you know, I could have advanced further with, um, with U.S. companies, probably would have meant to move over to the States, for personal reasons, uh, that, that wasn't such a good option for me. So so I focused my, my attention to the U.K. market.
0: Can you help us better understand how robust that tech sector is there? Why are the dynamics different from the U.S. as far as you have observed? I mean, does it have a lot of venture-backed uh, – is it venture-backed largely? And, uh, or have these firms grown in some different fashion? What do you think? Is this something sure. you can uh, share some thoughts on? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, the,
1: yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You know, people think tech companies and they think East Coast, West Coast, primarily West Coast um but there's a, there's a real thriving uh technology sector in the UK um so you know there's there's a number of names that have been sort of fashioned after uh silicon valley so you know in london here we have um silicon roundabout uh which is an area uh up around old street in london famed for, uh, for its tech startups um we have silicon fen in cambridgeshire which is uh there's lots of spin-outs from uh Cambridge University, um, lots of spin outs from Oxford University as well and several other universities here. So there's definitely a uh, a thriving tech market. There's there's lots of young companies starting up. there's two sort of trends over here, I suppose. Um one is that the the investment community, the um the VCs and the and the private equity houses and uh and to some extent, the corporate investors as well—they uh, they're typically less um, less inclined to make big bets, like uh, like the VC community in in the US is, is more able and willing to do. The risk profile of the typical investor over here, um, I think they're, they're they're generally more cautious, and and that 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 sort of leads to some. Difficulties sometimes when a company uh, over here you know it might be in a in a really hot sexy sector like uh, so for example you know in, in in one of my most recent companies before cluster seven um, I was with a cyber security company and, um, and we were developing a, a really fantastic um, alternative to username password as, as a means of authentication and we really struggled to. So, so this is a, you know, an opportunity that can change, change the way people uh, authenticate themselves to any kind of web-based service. It's it's an outstanding or potentially outstanding opportunity to change the face of, of that that um, aspect. And we really struggled to get the level of finance in the UK that uh, that we really needed, you know, to, to to change something as fundamentally ingrained in people's thinking. As username password, as something that is quite different but more secure, you, you, you need a lot of funding to do that. And you know, I, I genuinely believe that if we'd been based in the West Coast, then um, then we would have found that funding much more easy uh, to obtain. So so there's there's that sort of risk appetite aspect to uh, to the UK tech market that that means. Uh, funding isn't so, isn't necessarily so easy to obtain at scale, you know, at, at the sort of volume that uh, that is available in Silicon Valley, for example. Um, the, the other aspect is that, again, you know, thinking about uh, institutional investors, they in the UK, and this is just my personal experience, clearly, my personal view, that in my experience, they have a, a shorter... Time horizon are more willing or more more wanting to to sell out more quickly. I suppose is a sort of blunt way of putting it. Um, so so if a, an opportunity comes along to to exit a business that's doing reasonably well, then typically they will take that opportunity. Whereas uh, from what I've uh, understood of the the market in the U.S., that's you know, the VCs there are more willing to. To see it out for a greater value but you know requiring more investment and not necessarily taking the first opportunity to to uh, to sell out and um, and that's why I, I think you'll find a lot of companies that start out as high-profile growing tech companies in the UK end up being owned by US companies um, and and there are the exceptions, as you mentioned, Sage. You know, is, is one, but um, but typically that's the way things roll over here.
0: Well, thank you. That's a great overview. Do appreciate it, and uh, it's interesting. I mean, that makes it. Uh, uh, I would imagine the finance uh, executives then are much more uh, have to be conservative in terms of their cash uh, management, and uh, uh, <laughs> you know, pointing out risks uh, that. Uh, uh, given, given they're not going to have as much available funding, perhaps. I mean, I think that's a fair comment, yeah. Okay. Fair comment. Cluster 7, when you stepped in uh, to the CFO role here, what was the kind of job you then wanted to create for yourself? You had already done a number of earlier uh, finance leader tours of duty, and what was appealing about this, and what was the role you wanted to create?
1: So, so when I first had discussions with um, the cluster 7 CEO and um, and then subsequently uh, the investors one thing that, that struck me was that the company has you know has some really great products it has a, a great customer base um, it has the the startings of um, you know of a good uh, recurring revenue base um, and you know what I could see is that there was really the, the opportunity for someone like myself to come in and and make a positive impact. Um, you know, in terms of managing the finance department so that, as, a, you know, as I refer to my earlier sort of philosophy, you know, to, to integrate, integrate that as, as being part of the business. Um, from what I've been able to gather from, from talking to some of the, the senior people in, in the organization, uh, that maybe wasn't the case before. And um and I think that's you know, that's really key for me and, and for you know, should be for any CFO really to to come in and, and be able to to make finance really crucial. Um you know, as the sort of go to place rather than the shall I say avoid place, um or avoid until the last possible minute place. Um I mean the other interesting aspect was that uh seven is just um just just released now, but was was in the process of developing when I started uh, a, a SaaS offering. So you know, it's a, a sort of traditional on-premise software business, but but seeing the future moving the way it is, was um, was developing a, a a SaaS offering, and um, and I've previously been involved in in helping software companies uh, bring bring that to this to the market. So. That was a really exciting opportunity as well and uh, and one where you know, there, there was less experience of, of, of how SaaS works in in the company before I joined and uh, there's somewhere where I could really add some value so
0: where is uh, cluster seven as far as uh, its its funding is concerned? Will you be raising some uh, equity uh, backing for this firm um,
1: so we have uh, we're actually Rather unusually, um, pretty much 100% owned by private equity. Um, so that brings its uh, <laughs> brings its challenges as well as well as its rewards. Um, but the, uh, the investors that we have are, are really really on side. Um, you know, they they bought into the business um, about uh, eighteen months two years ago, and. For some of the reasons that I sort of touched on earlier, you know, the, the customer base and the, and, the, and the product base and so on, you know, they they had identified that it was a really, really interesting and and, and uh, potentially uh, valuable opportunity for them. So currently, we're we're pretty much self-funding. Um, you know, as we, we take on the, the challenges of developing a, a SaaS line of business, um, you know, that, that may require some, some additional funding along the way. Uh, but uh, but our current investors are you know, are really bought into that. So so rather unusually, um, you know, in, in my previous recent lives, um, you know, going out and getting funding from from additional DCS as well as uh, top up funding from from existing ones, has, has been a sort of fairly uh, fairly regular occurrence. Um, it's actually quite interesting here to be able to. Uh, Spend more time concentrating on the business rather than worrying about um, investor pitches um, on, on a regular basis. So, so in our to your question, um, we we may we may seek more funding, but we we have uh, an existing investor that uh, is more than willing and able to
0: to provide that. So, tell us what exactly is the offering? What does Cluster Seven offer its uh, users?
1: So, so what we uh, what we do is um, when I when I first had some discussions with the business, you know, someone described it like this to me. So it's CCTV for spreadsheets. Um, so what that means is, I and mean, that's a kind of an interesting visualization. But what that means essentially is that uh, that we have a, a sort of proven technology that allows organisations to to identify their their spreadsheet. State if you like, um, create an inventory of that, and, and then to, to manage those, those spreadsheets, well, certainly the, uh, the more critical ones uh, amongst them. Um, you know, it, it's a typical, on-premise, scalable, enterprise-level uh, software solution. Now, you know, one of the questions I had, um, which other people may well have and commentators have often commented on, you know, how, how long are spreadsheets going to be around for? Well the interesting thing is they they've been around since the eighties and despite uh, despite commentary <laughs> to the contrary, you know, they're, they're just not going away. Um, so they provide a, an invaluable resource for for businesses you know, and uh, in the regulated sector, in the, in the office of the CFO, typically um, could, because they provide uh, flexibility and they're always available. Um, they're often used to peep over gaps in, in systems that, uh, that are provided, and, um, and people can do stuff quickly and uh, in an agile way without having to, for example, you know, go to the centralized IT department and say, I need, a, I need an add-on for this system or, or, or that system. So, so spreadsheets are around, they're not going away, um, but they are, unfortunately, um, not necessarily well controlled. And, and, and the flip side of you know, the flexibility availability and, and so on is that there's typically a lack of visibility control and, and management over, over the spreadsheets that an organization uses. So as, as I mentioned, you know we've, we've had the on-premise uh, solutions around for a little while. that um, you know, we have a, a great deal of re- referenceable customers from those those um, on-premise deployments. For example, you know we've got a, a third of the world's top 30 financial institutions, uh, investment managers, energy firms across multiple countries that, that use the solution. But as I mentioned earlier, you know the way the world is moving now, um, people want want cloud-based solutions to, to many things, because um, you know, that gives people agility. It gives them a, a, a low upfront cost. Um, and so we've identified that, and, and we've actually built from the, the sort of ground up uh, a, a cloud-based um, checking with, uh, spreadsheet checking service um, and control service that, uh, that we're just starting to roll out now.:
0: So we know that you've only uh, really arrived at uh, Cluster 7 within the last uh, year. Uh, but what would you tell us uh, were among your first order, of business uh, items, what would they use have been?
1: What I discovered after joining and talking, you know, discussing with the senior management team about, about their needs and, and what they looked for from finance and what finance could provide to them, um, it quickly became apparent that that a lot of the, uh, the information and, and the data that was being collected by finance wasn't really being uh, disseminated out across the business and you know, to my mind, that's a, that's a bit of a hurdle and, a, and you know, not not something that should be encouraged. So, so one of the first things was really to to start building relationships with uh, the rest of the business, helping them understand what what finance does, how, how finance can help them, and also to to rationalise uh, a lot of the uh, the data sets and the information that was being held by finance. There was also, you know. Up being held by other parts of of the organization. One of the byproducts of of an inward-looking finance function is that people find their own (laughs) solutions elsewhere in the business and and, you you end up with duplication of of both effort and and time and uh, and potential discrepancies between different sources of information. So so one of the the things I really have have done, and. is an ongoing process, of course, but is to to rationalise all of that and, and to build one one common set of uh, of data sets, metrics, and so on that that are shared with the business and and can be relied on by the business.
0: And what would be an example of uh, one or two of those metrics?
1: So one of the the key metrics that we have um, is ARR, annual recurring revenue. Um, not, not just because we're starting to develop a, you know, a fast line of business, but but also through our our on-premise business. So we we have a reasonably significant uh, recurring revenue base in terms of ongoing maintenance and support and term licenses that are renewed annually. And and one of the things that we're we're trying to do, or, or you know, one of our goals, strategic goals, is to to build up that that recurring revenue base um to basically um be the the funding engine of the of, of the business and uh and so that's one of the, the key things that that i introduced as a as a metric and is reported you know, as, as part of the board pack to the the board and the investors on on a monthly basis and uh and more frequently than than that uh with the senior management team um and that's part of pricing, uh, you.
0: I would imagine. I'm sorry, I was thinking that uh, sorry. part of the way you can do that is is by uh, pricing and charging the customer. From what I understand, sometimes with the SaaS model, it's about you bring the customer on board and they pay up front, and therefore you have some cash. Mm-hmm. Is that how? Am I yeah, yeah. simplifying that too much? Yeah. Or, I, yep. No, no, no. I mean,
1: that's no, simple is good, Jack. <laughs> As I mentioned before, you know, historically a, 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 a sort of on-premise and perpetual license base, um, very much the sort of uh, slightly old-school way of doing things for a software business. And, and we're actively moving that away now to um, to offer term licenses, so licenses that renew annually, um, as well as the, uh, the ongoing maintenance and support that is paid up front, as you say. And with, with the SaaS offering, again, you know, that's going to be uh, annual or possibly quarterly subscriptions but, but again, up, paid up front. So, so that's all good for our, our, our cash flow and our recurring revenue, of course.
0: Well, I'd like to move to uh, our mentoring round now where I ask you several quick questions to inspire and mentor aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today?
1: So I, I suppose in one word I would say the cloud. What's two words? The cloud. Um, you know, the, I think what what we're seeing today is that the ability for people to to use the cloud to um, you know, in terms of cloud-based services and tools that are available, that you, know, you you can build pretty much any process you want. You, know, you can you can chain. Different uh, applications together through through APIs and so on to tailor a, 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 an automated process to fit exactly with your needs. Um, you know, it, it makes the, the business and and the finance department in, in particular much more agile. Um, you, you can do things at a, at a lower cost, uh, more flexibly, and and I think that's uh, that's you know, a really exciting time for. For the finance uh, community um, to, to help their businesses uh, grow and uh, and, and, to, and to manage the business in a, in a more effective way. Um, I mean, the other side of, of cloud, of course, is that it actually allows companies like ourselves to you know, to, to develop SaaS-based offerings in a in a really very cost-effective way. Um, for example you know we used Azure Microsoft Azure as our as our sort of um, cloud uh, cloud-based storage and, and processing capability um, and you know there are others out there uh, but you know that you, you can you can basically uh, have access to an almost infinite amounts of storage and processing capability um, on a pay-as-you-go basis, so you know, one of the great things of scaling a, a SaaS business using that kind of technology is that you can basically, your, your cost base you know, goes up in line with your revenue base, uh, whereas in, in the older days you would have had to you know, maybe build a da- data center, invest in a data center to, uh, to be able to offer that kind of service. Nowadays you can, you know, you can just log on to a, Azure, press a button, and, uh, and you've instantly got more, more capability, and, you know, and I think that's a really awesome way of uh, helping businesses grow.
0: What do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career?
1: What I've learned over the years um, is one of the key things is the relationship that you as a CFO have with your, in particular, non-exec directors and your investors. Um, I, mean, I, guess, I guess I'm thinking about you know, privately owned companies now, in particular, uh, which is where I've had the greater experience. But I think when you start out, you know, you're, you're as a CFO or, or, or you know, as a sort of finance manager or controller beforehand, you tend to be a little bit nervous of your, or you can be a little bit nervous of your your non-execs and your um, and your investors, and you, know, whilst you you can get comfortable with the the execs on the board that you see on a day-to-day basis, um, these other guys, you know, they're they're just they're just normal guys. They they want to really help the business. That's why they're there. Um, you know, they they don't have two heads. You know, they're quite normal people. And you know, I think I think having the uh, having the confidence to to involve them early on in in Strategy building, um, giving them heads up if there's if there's issues that you're aware of, and uh, and generally leveraging their, their knowledge and their network, um, I think are are really valuable things to be able to do and to have the confidence to do. And uh, and in my experience, you, know, you actually gain more respect by by doing those things uh, rather than giving people surprises you know, not not getting them to buy into the strategy until it's very late in the day um, so it, it's something that I've learned over time you know it, it would have been great if someone had told me up front that, that <laughs> that's one of the the important aspects of, of being a CFO in my experience
0: is there a personal habit that you feel has contributed to your professional success so
1: I think trying to um, have some brown time when you when you try to clear your mind, um, so I uh, <clears throat> well myself and my partner. So, she, so she's also in business, but in, in a completely different function. Um, we, we do what what we call a, a walk and a talk at, at the weekends. So we you know we go out into the countryside and uh, and just go for a long walk and and just mull stuff over, which some of it's personal, of course, <laughs> um, but also you know it's quite good to, to bounce ideas. And, and thoughts and concerns of someone else who who has no no real vested interest and um, and, and no um, any sort of preconceived ideas about how to do things. Um, so, no, I, I find that that over the years has been uh, a, a really useful thing.
0: So, a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders?
1: People have a saying, and um, and and. I don't know if you've come across it in the state, but people say that people work for people, not for companies. And in, in my experience I have found that to be to be just so true. Um <coughs> especially in companies like a software company where seventy five percent of the uh of the cost base is people. So, you know, for those people and also for the the, the CFOs amongst us, um, you know, understanding different leadership styles I think is it's really important. You know, it's not necessarily something that you're, you're taught as part of being a you know, chartered accountant, CPA, um, but it's something you have to really pick up over time. And um, and it, it's really essential in my mind to not only understand how how you're developing as a leader, but also to to navigate. Um, the CEOs that you work with and, and the board members that you work with and the other senior management team that, that you work with um, I, I've come across in my in my life a whole range of uh, different leadership styles from from CEOs and you know it's, it's really important to understand how to navigate uh, sometimes navigate with and some sometimes, <laughs> sometimes navigate around some of the, uh, the the styles that you you come across so with, with that in mind um, the book that I've uh, recommended is Leadership, a Critical Text, and that's by Simon Weston, that's W-E-S-T-E-R-N, um, which which sort of sets out different leadership styles, not necessarily always with a, a business context, but, but definitely with a, an organizational context. And obviously every business is an organization, and uh, I think it really helps to to sort of cement and, and understand some of the the ideas around different leadership styles, which is, as I as I've said, is, is in my mind a, a really important thing to 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 understand, um, and it's not necessarily part of a, a finance curriculum.
0: Thought leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We're going to ask Ian Peacock for his finance leader priorities over the next twelve months right after this message. You want smart? year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash market Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months?
1: So so for for me here, um, again, we've we've touched on some of these as we've been chatting along. Optimizing people and processes um you know, which is really quite critical for a smaller business that's well, obviously critical for businesses but especially for a smaller one um so that you know, it's one of those things that you have to do really to to maximize shareholder value um getting the best from your people helping them with uh efficient processes along the way um a r r we've we've mentioned so you know we have a strategic goal to to maximise our, our ARR, um, you know, and one of the things that, that I'm looking at for next year, for example, is, is how we structure some of the uh, some of the commission and bonus plans to be aligned with with that, um, ensuring that the transformation to to our SaaS line of business is, is successful, and just continuing with our um, with our process of improving real-time reporting, and uh, and that. Inevitably, is going to be moving uh, our finance uh, reporting and our accounting to the cloud. So there's quite a lot to be
0: uh, quite a lot to be challenged by. In a-